Welcome. This is the CGMI Living Springs Gospel Podcast. Stay tuned as you listen to the Word of God. So this month, October and November, we are reviewing the book of Romans. Romans is an interesting book. I think it is it is one of the few books where Paul Paul is not writing to a church to correct issues. He's not writing to a church that he's very, very familiar with. He's writing to a people that, by history, I'm not sure he had visited them before when he wrote this letter. So, this letter was written to explain to the church in Rome Paul's understanding of the gospel. Right? So, there's there's details given in it that you may not find in some other book from some other of his letters hallelujah okay so what we'll try to do this evening is a brief introduction i'll just do a brief introduction then pick out some points in the first two or three chapters depending on how much time we have are we together okay can we come together i'm seeing some empty seats let's come together Let's come together. Let's move forward a bit. All right. So Romans chapter 1. I think we'll be doing a lot of reading. I think we should do a lot of reading. Then we'll discuss. Let's do a lot of reading and we'll do a lot of reading and discuss. Romans chapter 1. So now, because Paul is writing to a to a people who he has probably not encountered physically before. He starts the conversation by giving an introduction of himself, right? He starts by giving an introduction of himself, not just himself, of his place in God and of his understanding of who God is to him. Are we together? So he starts by giving an an explanation of his place in God. What's who am I to write to you? In the, in most of his other letters, you see he writes to introduce himself to the people based on how they know him, right? So, how I was with you before, and then I have come to you. I'm writing to you now. But like in Philippians, when we reviewed Philippians, you could tell that there was a relationship. They had an understanding. He knew them and they knew him, right? So let's read. Let's see. From verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. So it says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So Paul gives a definition of himself saying, 
I am Paul. I'm a bond servant. So his first definition is I am Paul. And this is who I am in Christ. He says I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's his first explanation of himself. He said I am Paul. I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. So his understanding of himself is that he's a bond servant of Christ. He's not talking about... So the, the actual translation of the word used for servant there is not the... Does not refer to the 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 slave or the the it does not refer to the slave or the the suffer, suffering in being a servant. It refers rather to the absolute submission of being a servant, right? So he says, "I'm a born servant in that everything I am, everything I have, everything about me is owned by Christ, right?" So yes, yes, his definition of his position in Christ. He says, Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm fully given to him. And I am separated to the gospel of who? Of Jesus Christ. I have been called and separated to the gospel of Christ. Not to any other conversation. Not to any other thing. So my role is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we together? And then he's try, he tries to start to explain his understanding of the personality of Christ. Are we together? For a people he has not met, these introductions were necessary. So who am I writing to you? Why am I writing to you? Right? Who am I writing to you about? So personally, I find this the first, I think that the first two chapters of Romans are like an introduction into the actual conversations of the book of Romans. Because by the time you move to chapter 4, 5, 6, you start to, re- you start to go in, in depth into the things that Paul actually wants to communicate. Which are some of the things that, I think that there are a few people who wrote about those things in the New Testament. These are Paul's most important teachings of Christ. But I think that the first three chapters try to do, because he's talking to people he does not know, he has not, he has not encountered physically, I think, He's, he tries to relate his message to what the ordinarily would know. Does that make sense? So, he, in the first two verses, he had done an introduction of himself and of the person of Jesus Christ. So, he says that Jesus is the person, is the son of God who God has revealed, promised through his prophets. And then two things he also does. He creates a distinction. He says, by flesh, Jesus is the son of David. That's chapter th- verse 3. It says, by flesh, Jesus is the son of David. But you see, he was, he's also the spirit of God. Or he has also, he also has power as the spirit of God has declared. So let's, let's see verse 3. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So according to the flesh, he's born of the seed of David. And declared to be the son of God. So he's the son of David, according to the flesh, but he's also the son of God. And how, is, how was he declared to be the son of God? He's declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So two distinctions. He's the son of David, to confirm that he's the one whom the prophets have, prom- have God has spoken about through the prophets. Secondly, he's the son of God. And we have seen that testament of him by the Spirit of God. Okay? So, that's, for me, this, 
this introduction is this introduction is necessary because it gives us an understanding into the mindset of the person who is writing this letter. His understanding is that he is fully given to God, fully given to Christ, fully given to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and nothing else. Are we together? Are we together? Okay. Let us quickly move to verse 18. There's an important point I want us to um, see there. Verse 18. We'll read 18 to 32. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. So, just prior to verse 18, he talks about himself and the gospel. He had already said that, oh, he say he has been called for the gospel of, of Christ. He talks about himself and the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because... It is the power of God unto salvation, right? We had, I, I think, a while ago, Pastor Ma did a discussion on this, and we had to repeat this scripture over and over again. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first, and then to the Greeks and everybody. But it says, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now he then moves to verse 18 and starts to say this. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it, shown it to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor the bodies to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Next verse. For this reason, God gave, up, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural, use of, the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, bond in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error which was due. It says, and even as they did, not, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind 
to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of vile things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Go on. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, here's the first thing when you read this place. You begin to wonder, what is this guy saying? Are you saying that God has abandoned us? God has thrown us away? That's what's running, that's what runs through your mind when you read it, right? Oh, God has thrown us away. But what he's trying to do here, like we said before, is that he's trying to explain, he's trying to explain to them what he knows based on what they know. Everybody already knows about the law. Like when we read in Philipp- in, when we did the review of Philippians, there was already a contention about the uh, about the law and grace. There was a contention about circumcision and uncircumcision. Right? So what he's doing here is to first of all create the problems, show you the problems of the problems that are associated with the law. That's why I said chapter one and chapter two and even three are basically introductions to the main book. So they create the problems. He tries to explain the problems which he wants to give answers to. Right? So here is one thing he has said that this same God who gave us this same God who sent his son and everything. This God, having made man, realized that, oh, man had left him and was filled with all sorts of evil. God had given them over to evil because they have refused to admonish God. And so he starts to enumerate all the things that they began to do, the things that filled their heart, ungodliness, selfishness, all sorts of things, right? And he says, in verse 2, he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice it. So they know the righteousness of God. They knew that if you do this thing, you are wrong. If you do this thing, you will have death. Yet, they not only did the things, but they approved of the people who did it. So here's the problem. Problem one, there is the law. God has shown himself from the beginning of time. God has always made himself manifest. People have always known about God. But yet, even though they knew about God, even though they knew the ways of God, they still refused to keep God in their hearts. They still refused to admonish God. And so God had given them over to an evil mind. So they had begun to to do all sorts of things that were ungodly. Are we together? So that's the foundation of his conversation with them. So first of all, create problem number one. Show you problem number one. That everybody, everybody has been given, they have been given over. God had given them over to these things and they have become unrighteous. Are we together? So let's go to chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2. I just wanted us to, I wanted us to look at those, I want us to look at these two chapters and see, have a background of the conversation so that by the time we move on to 
the other chapters like 5 and 6, it will become easier to relate. So let's look at chapter 2 again. What other problem is there? He has first of all talked about how everybody, how man had left God. Right? He had given a background to how, how man has left God. How man had refused, even from the beginning of time, to acknowledge God. So, chapter 2 from verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same thing that you judge. Okay, so next verse. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So here's the first thing. He says you have no excuse who judge. So this guy says in chapter 1, he has convinced us that we went against God, right? That's what he succeeded in doing in chapter 1. That we all went against God. Now in chapter 2, he starts by saying, you are inexcusable if you judge. So what he what has simply done is to say, Marilyn, you have refused to acknowledge God, so you have been given over to a debased mind. Me too. So I cannot judge Marilyn. Does that make sense? Because the same things I judge her of, I am guilty of it too. Does that make sense? The same thing that I want to judge you for is the same thing I'm guilty of. Why? Let's read further. So verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the judgment of God it's according to truth. So now, you who is judging others, do you think you will escape the judgment? The judgment of God is according to truth. Note the word truth. Right? So if I judge you, do I think I'm going to escape the judgment? The same judgment that will come upon two of us. But there's a problem. If you look at verse 1, uh, chapter, if you remember chapter 1, if you, if you look, take chapter 1 and put it against this thing, you realize that there's already two problems. Let's move on. So, verse, I think I'll start from verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impatient heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil who does evil? Of the Jew first and also the Greek. So here's the problem. In chapter 2, it starts to talk about judgment, right? He has created the first problem that we are, all of us, 
I've left God. Chapter 2, he then starts to talk about judgment. He says no one can judge each other. The only person who can judge is God. And God's judgment is based on truth. Here's the problem. Who is truth or what is truth? That's why I said you should know the word truth. Who is truth and what is truth? Right? Then he goes further to say that here's the judgment of God. It's going to be very fair. And he's going to give every man according to what? According to his deeds. He's going to give to every man according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who have done well. And, you know, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Let's read further. Verse 12 says, For as many as have sinned without law, here's the, here's, here's the complication. He says, For as many as have sinned without law, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also, these although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and being themselves, being and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to the gospel. So here's the problem. He has created the first problem by saying that everybody, in chapter 1, first problem, everybody has left God. Chapter 2, he says we cannot judge. He starts by saying we cannot judge. No one is right to judge the other. Why? Because we have all heard. Right? Then he starts to explain that God will judge us. And this is how God will judge us. He will judge according to truth. Now, here he creates a problem. He says, or he prefers a solution. He says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. What's the law? One of the common conversations about the law is that the law is a set of instructions that was given by God to the children of Israel. Right? A set of instructions that, were given, that was given by God to the children of Israel. Some people commonly say it's the Ten Commandments, but they, if, you, if, you, if you follow, they were a lot more than the Ten Commandments because they were different instructions and dif- at different times. So, here's the thing. We had a conversation yesterday, the School of the World team, and we are saying this. If God is a fair judge, now remember, beginning of chapter 2 talks about the judgment of God being according to truth, right? If God is a fair judge, and we say he's going to judge by the law, which law? The one that was given to the children of Israel. And remember, it was not only the children of Israel that were alive at, that, at the time. In fact, they were not the most populous country because Egypt had kept them in slavery. So there were, country, there were other kingdoms. There were other, right? So if God was going to judge according to the law, judge every man at the time according to the law that he had given to the children of Israel. On what basis will he judge those who have not received the law? Does that make sense? Does my question make sense? I'll take an example, Ten Commandments. One of them says, thou shalt not commit adultery. That one is easy. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So what of the person who has not heard 
that thou shalt not commit adultery. On what basis will he be judged? Do you understand? He does not know that he should not commit adultery. An adult. <laughs> but here's the answer. He says, those who have sinned without law will also perish without law. You do not have the law. So you sinned without the law. You will perish without the law. And those who have sinned with the law will be judged by the law. It seems unfair. But here he goes further to say, for when Gentiles, here's the problem now, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So, the people who have not received the law, but by nature, they have done good things. These same people, have, by nature, they have, to be, they have to be rewarded for the good that they have done. So, if you have done good without the law, you will be rewarded without the law. If you have done, if you have sinned without the law, you will also perish without the law. But if you have sinned with the law, you will be judged by the law. How did, so how did these people who have not received the law know what to do? It goes what I says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, that's verse 14, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. So to those people, they are being judged by their conscience. That's the law written in their hearts. It seems like an answer, but it's a problem in itself. This is the second problem that Paul is trying to show about the law. He has thrown the first one in chapter 1, how everybody has refused to follow God. Here he throws another problem, the problem of judgment. Are we still... Am I already talking gibberish? If I'm talking gibberish, say small gibberish. Okay. He has thrown two problems. Like I said, this, this, the first three chapters, I think, are like an introduction into the book. So he tries to show you where he is coming from. So that by the time he starts to, talk, starts to talk about his solutions, starts to talk about his understanding of Christ, it becomes easier to get. It becomes easier to relate with. So he has created two problems. If we have to judge each other by how well you are doing, did you keep this commandment? Did you keep this law? How do we judge everybody? Equally. That's the problem he's trying to create in chapter 2. How do we judge everybody equally? How do I judge Rosalie? How do I tell Rosalie that when she wakes up in, in the morning, she's supposed to greet her elders? When she has never heard it before? Does that make sense? That's just wickedness. If I say, oh, Rosalie, oh, you entered this church today, you did not do sign of the cross when you entered. Go back home. I might not just be wicked to her. But if we have said the law before and say, Rosalind, any time you come into this church, do sign of the cross before you enter. It becomes easier, right? So that's the problem. Second problem is the problem of judgment. God's judgment is always true. So he says, according to the law, if you say you follow the law, those who have sinned by the law will be judged by the law. Those who have not 
will also be judged. They also perish without the law. Let's move on. Let's have. Let's move on. Uh, move this conversation forward. I think. So we have created, we have seen two issues, two, two issues. One, with everybody, everybody has left God. Everybody has a priest to acknowledge God. The second one is that we can therefore not judge each other. The only person who can judge us is God. Judge us is God, and God is going to judge. God will then judge each, each man according to their understanding of right and wrong. Okay, let's go to verse twenty-five of chapter two. Okay, verse 25. Now, here's the second problem. Here's the second problem. He uses the conversation about circumcision, which is one of the, uh, the major things we read about in Philippians. He says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. If you remember our conversation in Philippians, there was the strife between those who are circumcised and those who are not circumcised. Some of the Jews who came, who were circumcised, came to the Philippian church and tried to impose circumcision to de- on them as a prerequisite for righteousness and right standing with God. So that was a, one of the problems that he had to deal with with the Philippian church. So here he brings that conversation here. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteousness, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision become counted as circumcision? And will not the physical uncircumcision if I'm sorry, the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, be judge, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgression of the law, a transgressor of the law. So problem two expanded. If we say, oh, let us use circumcision, because that's one of the laws that was also given to the children of Israel, right? That the male children must be circumcised. If we judge by circumcision, you say you are circumcised physically. But somebody who is not circumcised is doing good. You who say you are circumcised, you are doing evil. Will that man's uncircumcision good work not be counted to him as circumcision? Do you understand? And then your own evil will be counted to you as uncircumcision. This is an expansion of the problem of judgment. Right? It's an expansion of the problem of judgment. It says, so if you say you are circumcised, circumcision is not of what you have done to yourself. It's of what you do. If you are circumcised, do, if you say you are circumcised, produce fruits according to your circumcision. Right? Else, the person who is not circumcised, Who is producing fruits of circumcision? He's, in fact, he himself will he not now judge you who is not circumcised, who is circumcised. That's the problem. So if you put in Christian terms, in today's Christian terms, if you say you go to church every day, you go on Sunday, you go on Thursday, you will even be here on Saturday. 
Yet, the moment you cross this door, you are a problem to everyone around you and to society. We, the people who do not come to church, who are producing good fruits, we don't not judge you. That's the, that's the kind of conversation he's having. If you believe that yourself, your righteousness or your holiness is by coming to church, right? If you now come to church and you, do, you live and you don't produce fruits that are befitting of somebody who comes to church, will the person who produces good fruit not judge you? So that's the kind of conversation he's having here. So, verse 28, yes, now, guess where he begins to bring it home. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where inwardly, and circumcision is that of where the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men. But where? So, first solution to some of the two problems that are some of the problems that have been enumerated: circumcision, physically or no circumcision, physically walking into the church or walking out of the church. I'm going back to my example. That's not the that's actually not the yardstick for measuring the actual circumcision that God is looking for. He says the actual circumcision that is relevant is that of the heart. Are we together? That your heart is fully given to him. He says, it's not the one done outwardly, but the one done inwardly. He says, circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter. So here's the first, here's one of the first times he's introduced. Apart from when he was talking about um, how we know that Jesus is God. This time he introduces that same spirit to every one of us and he says, the testament, the testament of, our, of our circumcision, the testament of your right standing with God is in the circumcision of your heart in the spirit. Are we together? Not in the letter of it, not in the religion of it, but in the pureness of your heart, that your heart is truly, truly given to him. Are we together? So what have I tried to do? I've tried to create the problem of romance for you before we start to... So that when we start reading all I've seen and fortune of the glory of God and this is what righteousness is, I start to talk about the details. It begins to make sense. You can understand where the conversation is coming from. Because next week Thursday, by next week Thursday, we'll move in depth into it and start to look at some, the understanding of sin, maybe from chapter 4 or 5. And then six as well. Where do, where do this place? It becomes easier to understand. We have already seen the problem of it. We can no longer judge and look at things from the point of what did you do? Where we look at it from is why did you do? That's what God looks at. Not what you did, but why you did. Are we together? That's what's more important. So he says, it's not the circumcision of, it's not the outward circumcision. It's not how I try to pretend or how I, the religious things I try to do. No. It is where my heart is. That's what God looks at. That's how God judges. That's the circumcision that God is looking for. That's what God really wants. And if you take it, if you uh, put this against chapter 1, he says, if you remember, he says, he says, and they refused to carry God in their hearts. They had seen the things that he had done, but they still refused 
to surrender their hearts to him. So he gave them over to a debased mind. But here he says the true circumcision is to bring your heart back to be circumcised to him. Are we together? Am I making any sense? Am I just talking nonsense this evening? So, here's the reason I added chapter 3 to the first two, verse, two chapters. I said they are the introductory chapters. Chapter 3 also does... Chapter 3 now starts to look directly at sin. So, now that we know that everybody has sin, let's look at sin itself. Right? Let's just read... Um, I think we still have some time. Let's just read... Two parts of this chapter three. I will do from. I'll start reading from verse nine. Then later I'll read from verse twenty-one. I'll read from verse nine. It says, "What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all were under sin. Every man is under sin. Okay. As it is written." There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The the poison of asps is on their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. I read verse 20 again. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, who? No flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he has brought the problem to the ground now. By the law, if you follow the law, no human being will be what? Justified. By the law, no human being will be justified. If we go by what did you do and let's be marking register, you told the lie today, you missed commandment one today, no human being will be justified. No human being will be justified by the law in the sight of God. It says for the law, for by the law, is the knowledge of sin. So that's the that's the that's the actual problem he has defined. Before he goes to start to explain to the church, oh, this is now how you can live. This is the new life that Jesus has brought to you. Before that, he had tried to do what to explain the problems that they will have with the law. So let's 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 look at verse 20, from verse twenty one again. It says. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 26. To demonstrate at the present times his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now solution has started. He says now this is the righteousness of God revealed apart from the law. In fact, verse 20 that we read before, before this says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh can be just. If you follow the law, no human being is qualified. No human being is justified. But verse 21 says, but now, the right, but now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the righteousness of God. Faith in Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. That's the only way you can live above sin. That's the only way you can be justified, actually. Justification is not by self-righteousness. Justification is not by you trying to do what is good. Justification is by having faith in Jesus Christ. So all the, the problems he tried to enumerate from chapter 1 to chapter 2, here's the solution to all of those problems. Why are you calculating hard mass of what you did, who was circumcised, who is not circumcised, who is under the... Why are you suffering yourself? He says this is the righteousness of God revealed to everybody. How? Faith in Jesus Christ. This is how we get justified. Amen? He says, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, on everyone that believes, Jew, Greek, Arab, anyhow, to everyone that believes. For there's no difference. Boko Haram or ISIS, there's no difference. This is the righteousness of God to everyone who believes. It says there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus. The only way to be justified in the sight of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Is by who? So here's the end of this conversation for today. Many times, and I've seen this growing up, that 
we try to qualify ourselves. We try to, there's strife among, among each of us. There's strife, you find strife among people, everybody trying to qualify themselves, trying to judge themselves based on, oh, how well they are, how, how well you are following God. Oh, you did this, you did not do the other one. Oh, this person dresses like this person doesn't dress like that. Oh, this person behaves like this, the other person doesn't behave like that. But here's the truth. The only way to be justified is not by the things that you do, it's by who you are. It's by who you have faith in. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Because righteousness and justification is in Christ and Christ alone. It's not by the things that you try to do. Are we together? Simple solution. This and the other problems we are bringing, which is easier? Which is easier? Were you not almost confused when I was reading chapter 1 just now? Or is it not confused? Even you, were you not getting confused? And we did not even try to read all the laws. But here's a simple solution. Faith in Jesus Christ. Simple solution. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. That's how you get justified in the sight of God. Hallelujah. So yes, this is where we will end our conversation for today. Next week, we'll continue probably from um, chapter 4. Uh, School of the Word on Sunday, we'll be doing, I think, chapter three, chapter 2 to chapter 4, or chapter 2 and chapter 3. Depending on how much time we have. Don't miss it. I would advise, like I always say when we are doing book reviews, that you read up. Read it up. This, the books are not hard to read. Read it up. If you cannot read every, if you cannot rush through the entire book, read at least three chapters a week so that you would have read ahead of the place, you would have gone ahead of the places that we'll be discussing. So when we are having the conversations, they are not strange to you. Are we together? So that when we are having the conversations when we come like this, they are not strange to you. You probably have already thought of all of these issues. So when we are talking about it, it becomes easier to understand. Amen. If you have learned something this evening, genuinely, if you have learned something this evening or you have been reminded of something you already know, just put your hands together. Let me hear. Uh, hold on. Let's do the other side. Let's do the other side. Wait now. If you have not learned anything, you have not been reminded of anything, genuinely, put your hands together. Do it with confidence now. Or are you unsure? All right, praise God. Please don't miss any of the um, Thursday fix, at least between now and November. I advise you not to. The book of Romans is very interesting. It's, um, I think it's the book that actually gives a better understanding into this. Is, if, you read, if you read the books based on how they are arranged in the New Testament, this is the first book that takes an in depth look into the position of a believer in Christ into our standing with God and it makes sense to read if you have not read any other book the book of Acts and the book of Romans so we are reading the book of Romans today but I'm sure that the first book we will review next year is going to be the book of I believe it will be the book of Acts the first book we will review next year should be the book of Acts but the book of Romans is very interesting and it's, it's good for us to all read it together Amen Thank you for listening to the CGMI Living Springs Gospel Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at CGMI underscore Springs.